0: I'm going to read to us first, if I can, from Isaiah uh, 66, just to, to fuel our prayers as we uh, begin to look at these verses together. Let me look at Isaiah 66 just briefly. The Lord says this, These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirits, and who tremble at my words." Father, you know us, you know our hearts. You know the pride of our hearts. And so we long as we look at these verses together this morning that you would humble us, that we might be humble as we come before you. We pray for ears that hear. We pray for contrite hearts that long to change. We pray that you would mould us and shape us this morning. In your Son's name, Amen. I wonder, are you the kind of person who, who likes to read the final page of the book first? Or maybe you're the kind of person who likes to remove the final page of books for those people who can't read them. You know, the kind of person we can't quite cope with the tension and so we, we need to know how it's going to end before we'll bother starting the book. Is it going to be a happy book or am I going to finish depressed? I don't particularly want to read it. I'll leave it, thank you. We must know how it ends. It turns out you might be onto something. Ben Smith, wherever he is, one of our ministry trainees, pointed me to a study recently that came from the University of California. And it found that stories were actually enjoyed more by those who knew how the story was going to end. One of the authors said, it's sort of as if knowing things puts you in a position that gives you certain advantages to understand the plot. Another author says, it could be that once you know how it turns out, you're more comfortable processing the information of the story. You can focus on a deeper understanding of where it's going, what it's about. So, So knowing where it's all going means that we can enjoy it more. we means that it has more meaning for us as we read the story. And for the Christian, it is that. We, we know how it's going to end. We're shown the final bit of the drama where God's rescue plan all ends up. The culmination of everything, the final consummation of God's plan for his world. A time of transformation where his people are able to worship him, to serve him as we were made to not marred and tainted by sin or by suffering. So that knowledge of the then impacts how we live now. The last page of the book changes the significance and importance of day-to-day living. But I I think it's more than that too, though. It's not just that that we know the end and so we're able to press on and cope with the difficulties of the now. No, no, the end is to impact and to shape and to mould us now. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said uh, that we are to store up treasure in heaven and not treasure on earth. Then he said this, he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is, at the start of this new year, what do you treasure the most in life? Because that is where your heart will follow. So do you treasure money? then your heart will chase after money and your life will be shaped by money. Did you treasure a person, a real person, a hypothetical person? Then your heart will chase after them and your life will be shaped by them. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, then your heart will be also, and so it is vital for us to treasure the end of the story, where it's all going, because that will shape us. It will mold us. The problem is, we get it wrong, don't we? So we, we've been seduced by that the treasure of this world and, and our hope is in little things like a new year, or a new job, or a new outfit, or, or a new church, or whatever it might be. Or frankly, we have these tiny, puny visions of heaven. We've believed the lie about clouds and harps and nighties, and and our hope becomes weak and diluted and laughable. So for these three weeks, three weeks in a dark December, we're going to be focusing on these final chapters of the Bible. People often feel very hopeless at the start of a new year. And so it's my prayer that we will look at and understand and explain something of, of our true biblical hope, from the end, to to grasp it mentally together. But more than that, that we will be shaped by it. That our lives will be moulded by the certain hope of heaven. That that our true home would shape us. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the chapters, or these, these verses thematically again and again over the three weeks. So rather than going through verse by verse by verse, We're going to to sweep over each time and pick up a different theme for that week. So this week we're going to be thinking about people. Uh, Next week we'll be thinking about the place. And then the week after, I think most importantly in our final week, God's presence. But before we dive in, we need some introductory thoughts. How do we read these kinds of writings? How do we understand and interpret the, the apocalyptic Just a few very brief thoughts to try and give us some ideas. These are the kind of things we can develop as well in home groups. If you aren't in a home group, let me encourage you to get in a home group. But just a few ideas to how we understand these these verses. The first thing to say is that the writer, that God, is trying to explain things in a language that we can understand. He's not trying to confuse us. He's not trying to make things obscure or muddy. And yet, we say, well, he's talking of brides and cities and lions who are, who are like lambs. So why does he do it this way? Why does he speak in that way? One, one writer said, well, one of the reasons God uses so much symbolism is because we are so dead to him. We are so blind. We are so unable to understand that, that he ends up creating categories for us. Or on axes that shouldn't meet, where he makes word pictures that aren't supposed to be drawn to try and bring some of the concepts and ideas into our minds. These pictures that are so powerful as we try and balance them and grasp what's going on. But maybe say, well, how do we understand these images? What does he mean by a city or a bride or a lamb or a lion? Do we just import our own ideas? Do we give meaning to the text ourselves? You know, I think of cities. I spent 15 years in Birmingham. Birmingham has pollution. It's smelly. Does this bride have have issues that we need to talk about? What is going on? Of course not. To go back to our opening illustration, if you're the kind of person who likes to read the final page in the book first, as you read it, you don't really understand much of what's going on in the story, you don't really know the characters or the plot, or the development of the plot, or really of any of what's come before. You just know how it ends. Well, I think so with Revelation, so with any of Revelation. By necessity, it's going to be a culmination of stuff that's come beforehand, a consummation of all the text before. So to try and grasp the images and understand what's going on in Revelation, we need to have read our Bibles. It's the summary. We need to know the story And so lots and lots of what we will see is, if you like, the summary of the story of the Bible, pictures that have been picked up and developed and worked right through until we get to Revelation 22. So we will do that now, and there will be four brief points for this morning. Wow, Jonathan, that was clever. (laughs) I like that. Um, So firstly then, it is going to be a place of people, which sounds pretty simple. But what I'm trying to say is this isn't an idea... or or a philosophy, or a story, or a poem, or a hypothesis. This is solid, this is real, and there will be real people in the new heavens and the new earth. And broadly speaking from the passage, it seems there will be two contrasting groups of people who will be there. The first one is the covenant people of God. They will be there, God's people, saved and washed and forgiven and rescued, not through anything they've done but through Jesus and what he's done. You see it in a number of ways, but look at it with me first in verses 2 to 3. And notice the language of bride in these verses. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God." But down again, verse 9 to 10 in 21. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That the close and loving, intimate relationship between God and his people it is pictured as a marriage. I take it marriage at its best. is a great way to describe it. It's the closest human relationship we have. And so what better way to picture a relationship between God and his people? It's like a marriage. It's there as a concept right through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. From Deuteronomy onwards, apostasy, people turning their backs on God, is often described as adultery. It's shocking. It's graphic. It's God's people jumping into bed with other gods. Later on, have a look at Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23. It's horrible. Shocking. And yet here, at the end of it all, we have the wedding feast of the Lamb. That is what takes center stage. No more unfaithfulness. No more pain. No more adultery. No more running after other gods that promised them life. Simply the intimate, eternal relationship that we were made for. Forever. And we can be certain that those who are there are those who are meant to be there. Have a look again, verse 12 to 14. He's describing the city, but he says, verse 12, on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. He then continues, there were three gates on the east, three on the north, on the south, on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. John is shown this city and on the, and the names of, of the tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles are all there. Those who, who trusted God's promises in the past, who faithfully anticipated and looked ahead to the gospel in the Old Testament, their names are there. Those who heard it and trusted it and proclaimed it in the new, their names are there. And twelve is a number of completeness, so... The people who are there are those who are meant to be there. God's people. back in, um, back in Ezekiel, Prophet Ezekiel, chapter 48. It, it, there again again you see a city being described, and on the city were the names of the tribes. The gates of the city will, will be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi. And then the vision ends like this in Ezekiel 48. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. Or as our chapter puts it, God's dwelling is now among his people. So God's people are there. This is a place of people, real people. People who have been rescued by God. But then there's this second sort of contrasting group who again and again seem to be mentioned. And that is the nations, or or the Gentiles even. Let me just show you the verses first and then we'll try and understand what's going on and why they're there. So verse 24, do you see? The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. Well then a bit further on, verse 26, the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Well, then into 22, verse (coughs) 2. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. So there's this contrast there that seems to confuse some. Who will be in the city? Who who are the people of God? Because some have taken the reference to nations to mean while everybody will be there. It's a universal vision. Everybody will be in heaven. And yet, I don't think that really fits with the flow of Scripture. Or even verse 8, if you look down, that's a huge problem for that kind of idea, because there are people who won't be there. There are people who are excluded from this future. I would urge you, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, trust Christ for yourself trust Jesus that the world says well if there is a heaven then everybody is bound to be there but that doesn't match up does it with our verses this morning those who trust Jesus are forgiven and washed and they will be there and I'm afraid only they will be there trust God's rescue plan become a part of his bride for yourself trust him but what is going on with these nations? Well, I wonder if there's not a, a couple of things that might be happening. The first is that, again, it's a culmination of a theme of Scripture. And as you read through the Bible, you see again and again and again. And that is it's the, the idea that God will be where he belongs. He will be worshipped by all at the centre of the universe. All will glorify him. All will worship him, even his enemies. Let me just give you a, a kind of potted walk through some of these ideas in mind. Psalm 2. We see the opposite happening, if you know Psalm 2. The the nature of sin is a corporate rebellion against God. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains, let us throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The nations, the kings, rebelling against God, turning their backs on him. As a God's rescue plan becomes, as it becomes clearer, you see the breadth of those who will bow to Jesus. Isaiah 49, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. People will bow to Jesus from all walks of life. And then a glimpse to the very end though, Isaiah 60. Christmas verses. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. You see it in part with the Magi coming to Jesus. But now that's fulfilled, when all nations will bow, God, the source of all goodness, will be at the centre, providing blessing. He'll be worshipped, he'll be adored. God where he belongs, God's people where they belong. So I think that's going on. It's the culmination of a theme going through scripture. But more than that as well, the second, if we've been reading through Revelation, which we've not, then you will have remembered from chapter 7, there's this glimpse of who is worshipping around the throne. After this I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. All nations represented. Every language you can conceive of. Every dialect, every group, every people, every colour. The description morphs that the covenant people of God are people from... Everywhere. God had promised to Abraham that through his family the ends of the earth would be blessed, and here they are, receiving the ultimate blessing of a presence of God. Of course it's one of the reasons why it's so great to have such diversity in this geographic area that the peoples of East Oxford because, because God deserves their worship. The Christian faith is not just something for, for Westerners. Do, do pray for us as leaders, as we think about how to reach the peoples of this area better, because they will all be represented in the new heavens and the new Earth. Or well, think about your colleagues or people in your class or on your course, that the breadth of the peoples of Oxford and, and many, many nations do converge here are nothing compared to what the new creation will be like. I take it as well, it's also why our churches ought to be broad. In a little sense, we're to be a foretaste of heaven. Broad people rescued by Jesus from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of nations, just to, to filter off and to siphon different groups, ethnic groups or interest groups or whatever it might be. It's much easier. But we lose something of the gospel. Something of the richness of a gospel diversity, as Jesus calls his family together. So that's our first point, and our longest point. So it's, it's a remarkable mix. The covenant people of God come from all nations, all walks of life. And yet the experience of these people are also remarkable, because the struggles of the Christian life have gone. So, with me, look back over your last week. And what would you change about yourself? What would you change about your experience from this last week? I take it, if we're honest, many of us would would look back and and feel sadness towards our sin, our ongoing experience of of rebellion against God, the way again and again and again we fall into that temptation. And and the people we love the most are those we end up hurting the most. And we say we'll never do it again, but but we do. And if it's not sin, then experience of suffering, broken bodies that are decaying and don't properly work anymore and limbs that ache and trips to the doctors and blood tests and or broken minds, darkness, depression. And the good news is from these verses that one day those will be a thing of the past. They will be gone. So let's look firstly and see it will be a place of no sin. Imagine a world where you have no need For New Year's resolutions. Imagine a world where prayer and reading the Bible come naturally and easily. A world where your fuse with others is infinitely long, where your words are always kind and wise. you know that sin that you hate in your life, the one that that you're embarrassed by, perhaps nobody else knows about it? One day that will be a thing of the past. and It'll be gone. Have a look at verse 6 onwards with me. He said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children, better sons. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That the culture at the time when the Bible was written was for boys generally to follow in the footsteps of their fathers. That was what it was expected. He, he was a blacksmith, you would be a blacksmith. He was a farmer, you would be a farmer. He was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. And so then, verse 7, they will be my children, sons. Well, we are God's children now. But there'll be a time coming when we'll be perfectly his children. We will be like him. The frustration with ourselves now will be gone. The daily battle to follow Jesus will be gone. Because we'll be like him. And so he says, if we're victorious, that is, I take it, if we keep clinging to the gospel... We keep close to the cross, then there will be a time we will utterly be His sons, utterly conformed to the image that we were meant to be conformed to, just like our Father in heaven, to reflect Him. No more sin, or death, or sorrow, or hypocrisy, or two-facedness, or ungodly competition, or self-centeredness, or whatever it is for you—all gone. The presence of sin, a thing of the past. Wouldn't that be amazing? Don't you treasure, don't you long for that day? But verse 8, those who are not God's, those who do not want him, those who are not forgiven, they must pay for their own sin before a perfect and just God. As just as with Satan in the previous chapter, they will be excluded from God's presence. going to be a place of no sin. It'll also be a place of no suffering. You see, with our rebellion against God, as we turned our backs on him, so we turned our backs on his life, his blessing. And yet verse 4, the curse that came with that rebellion has now gone. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Imagine a world where there's no more phone calls from the hospital telling you the thing that you dread. Where we have no need for an NHS. No doctors, no drugs, no repeat prescriptions. A place where, no, where lawyers do not exist. A place where we don't need to be anxious or, or worried or to panic. A place where all, all your wrong fears have gone. And that's just the kind of world being painted here for us. He's just the kind of language he's using. Just the kind of pictures he wants to evoke. But if you remember, them. Um, I've toyed whether to use this illustration, but you remember Jade Goody? She was part of the, the Big Brother phenomenon. I spot it still trundling along on our screens. The celebrity version has just started. Sadly, she died of cancer a few years ago. Uh, but seemingly, she went through some sort of remarkable conversion before she, was, uh, before she died. She, she came to faith as she began to grapple with her own mortality, uh, as she saw death looming. I remember uh, with an interview with a local vicar who had spent lots of time with her. It seemed to be remarkably genuine. Listen to this from an interview um, with OK! magazine just a few weeks before she died, and just before her wedding as well. The interviewer said, Well, once the wedding is over, will you be fearful of dying? She said, I'm not scared of dying anymore. I'll have had the happiest day of my life, it's the wedding, so I'll be ready to go to heaven. But I am so scared and so, so sorry to be leaving so many people I love behind. That's what scares me most, having to leave them and never see them again. But do you want your boys to have faith, the interviewer asks. She says, I'm going to have them christened. I want them to believe in God and heaven. When I told them, Freddie said to me, he said, heaven is a bad place. It's where people go when they die. And I said, no, that's not right. It's where people who are poorly go to get better. In a funny way, I like that last bit. It's simplistic, but it shows us something of the reality of the fact there won't be suffering anymore. Bodies won't be broken anymore. Minds won't be broken anymore. It's where people who are poorly go to get better. And so as a church family, as we mourn, the death of Tony Reid as we continue to mourn the death of Shirley Latian perhaps as we mourn others then we can have confidence that those who have trusted Christ are not suffering and that one day when the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in well they will have bodies that do not break they will have bodies that do not suffer anymore no sin No suffering. And thirdly, and ever so briefly and finally, it's going to be a place of intimate service. Over to 22. And just look at verses 3 to 5 with me. Again, he says no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. We're going to glance here now but in two weeks' time we'll spend much more time here. Just for now, notice a couple of things. Notice it's going to be a time of deep intimacy a time when we can relate to God perfectly and confidently, we will see his face. Isaiah, as he encounters God in his throne room, he sees him high and lifted up, but we're not told about his face. And the seraphim have to cover their eyes, and Isaiah falls onto his tummy. And Ezekiel can give us this great description of the mobile animal-like throne of God as the people are in exile, but he doesn't see his face. And yet here, finally, face-to-face relationship with the God of the universe. It means we, we know him intimately and, and perfectly far more than we do now. No more frustration and, and feeling cold and distant and aloof from God. And he knows us intimacy. And look, end of verse 3, we serve him. That's going to be a surprise for those who might be looking forward to playing harps all day. But it seems to me we're going to be lovingly, joyfully serving the God who made us. Heaven, I take it, will be a place in some senses of work. It will be a place of rest. Of course it will. We're not going to be sat around twiddling our thumbs. I think, again, that's the direction of the Bible. Work existed before the fall. God created the world in such a way that he integrated our our skills and our desires to develop and cause things to flourish. We were made for work. And yet our, our work to come, like Adam in Genesis 2, as he worked and he served God, will not be marred by the frustration and the pain and the Monday mornings of our broken worlds. A work with value, dignity, purpose, joy, fulfilment. Don't you ache for a world like that? Where sin is not an issue for you anymore. Where the battle is finished. It's a thing of the distant past. Where, where, where suffering doesn't haunt us anymore, but rather we can look back and see our suffering has, has shaped us and conformed us and molded us. Where intimacy and service for God characterize who we are perfectly. Don't you long for home?